Welcome to the Flying Baton, the magical land of beginning band. Coming to you from the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, your host, Charlie Nesmith. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Flying Baton. If my voice seems a little subdued at the beginning of this episode is because we recorded this episode on Halloween night, and the day afterwards, I got really intensely ill. And those of you who have preschoolers know that they bring home uh, every illness known to man. And my son had been sick for about a week before Halloween. And my wife and I went a really long time without getting anything. We're like, oh, maybe we're immune this time around. But, you know, when you have your toddler coughing in your face for several hours a day, I mean, I guess you'll get sick eventually. So I'm still on the tail end of recovering from that. Also, apologies for not releasing episodes a little bit more frequently. As some of you guys know, my band was selected to play at our state music conference, the Virginia Music Educators Conference. And man, we have just really been grinding to get this performance uh, ready. And it's, it's about in two weeks. And we, yeah, we've just been working really hard. But man, it is a tremendous amount of effort to get seven monumental works ready in just a couple months. I think I mentioned on the last episode a little bit of sticker shock that I had when we booked our, our charter buses. So just to give you a little, a little additional sticker shock, let me talk about programs for a second. So I knew I wanted a designer to design our concert program because neither John or myself, I would consider that a strength of ours. And we talked with Central Office and they were like, hey, we know this really great designer and I think we should hire her. And I said, cool, are you guys going to pay for it? And they said, yeah, we can do that. So they put me in touch with a designer and we gave her all the information. And dude, when I I tell you that this is going to be the most beautiful concert program you have ever seen in your entire life. And I'm not just saying that because I'm biased and I love my kids. Like, truly, this is going to be one of the greatest concert programs of all time. And I don't say that lightly. Initially, Central Office was quoted a price of around $1,500 to design the program. And I thought that was a bit steep. But I was like, you know, they said they cover it. So I guess that's okay. So when all was said and done, I got the final invoice yesterday. And would you care to guess how much that we were billed for? Uh, drum roll, please. $3,700. And that's just for the design. Printing is going to be about another $3,000 for 600 copies. So in total, we will have spent probably close to $7,000 on the program, which is crazy. So uh, yeah, so if you come to our performance at VMA Thursday, November 16th, 1.30 p.m., Ballroom C, please take a program, maybe like frame it, or, you know, vacuum seal it, put it in a time capsule. You know, if you have a relative that works for NASA, maybe seal it up in a spaceship and send it out for the aliens to admire. If we're going to spend $7,000 on these concert programs, <laughs> I do not want a whole bun- a bunch left over in boxes at the end of the performance. I mean, they're beautiful. They're, don't get me wrong. It is the most amazing concert program I've ever seen in my life. And we get to highlight our town. And the things we like about our town, we have lots of great pictures of the kids. Like, it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. But good Lord, uh, 7000 is a lot of money. Anyway, let's, let's get to this show. So I've been wanting to do this episode for a while. John and I host a lot of student teachers, partially because of our proximity to JMU. So we have about three per year and have for the last several years. So I reached out to someone from each one of the years since COVID to come on the episode today. So we have three guests today, which is kind of a lot for this particular podcast. So we have a first-year teacher, a second-year teacher, and a third-year teacher. And we're going to go through kind of a variety of topics going from their collegiate preparation to their student teaching placement, and then finally, the job hunt 
and actually getting the job and how much college and their student teaching placement did or did not prepare them for those roles and kind of their experience with that. So it's going to be a really good time. And I really appreciate their perspective on a lot of things. And I know that you will too. So without further ado, let's get into it. Oh my God, it's like so amazing to see everybody. It's like my favorite people all in one Zoom. Happy Halloween, everybody. I have, I've already started. I have my Dark Hollow beer ready to go. I love this stuff. If you haven't had it, it's like it's like a bourbon barrel stout. And it's really hard to get any Ooh. time of the year that's not like October through December. But it's like my favorite beer. Sounds really good. Well, thanks everyone for, for coming on the podcast today. Let's just have everyone introduce themselves. And we'll go, I guess, in, in order of seniority. That might be the easiest way to do it. But just uh, let us know who you are. Where are you teaching and how long have you been there? Tim. Uh, my name is Timothy DeSimone. I teach at Wilson Middle School. It's like eight miles outside Stanton. And this is the start of year three. I guess the start of the second nine weeks of year three. I'm a student taught at Shelburne Middle School in 2021. I'm Justin Thornton. I am at Lansdowne Middle School in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'm in my second year teaching. I guess it's kind of second and a half because I, I started as a long-term sub about two months before the end of the school year. But just like Tim, I student taught at Shelburne in 2022, graduated from JMU. And yeah, it's a little bit about me. Okay. My name is Noah Sharp. I'm in my first year teaching. Just a little bit of background about where I'm teaching. There are two schools, Lancaster Elementary and Lancaster High. Lancaster Elementary is K through seven. So I teach six and seven there. And I teach eighth grade at Lancaster High School. And I just finished student teaching this spring. Fabulous. Thanks, guys. And just, before we move on, I just want to say, Justin, I saw the video that your wife posted of like, what was it? Band and orchestra and choir all doing Thriller at the same time. That was incredible, man. Could you tell me how, that, how did that come to be? Yeah. So we have a really great music department at my school. And I was trying to do my fall concert this year, the first time I've ever done one. And I was doing Thriller, and my orchestra teacher um, actually is a professional bass guitar player for a rock band called Waxing Poetics. And he was like, hey, man, can I play bass guitar with your band? And I'm like, sure, that would be awesome. And I'm like, well, hey, while you're at it, why don't you have all of your kids play with us? Because we were all going to be doing the concert together because we wanted to have the whole school experience, every part of our musical department. And he's like, yeah, I could just arrange this for the strings. And it worked out to be pretty awesome. And then the chorus learned a thriller dance and sang along with the audience. And it was it was just a great experience for all of our departments to get together. Yeah, it was really cool because you you had the, the choir members like surrounding the audience. Right. So they were singing and doing the dance, but it was like completely in, in, like encompassing the audience. Like, oh man, it just it looked like so much fun. That was great. Well, let's get kick things off. So I've sort of separated our questions kind of into stages. So we're going to talk about your collegiate experience. We're going to talk about your student teaching placement. And then we'll talk a little bit about when you guys actually got like your first official job and kind of how that's going. So let's let's start with Tim here. When you are an education student at JMU, do you feel like the primary focus of your preparation was geared towards being a good teacher or being a good performer? So I think I got different perspectives on that from different professors depended on the class I was taking. Like my professor in my studio, my studio professor, he very much believed that you had to be a competent musician, a good musician if you wanted to be a good teacher. And he felt strongly about that. And that in high school was part of the appeal for wanting to go and study with him. They told me in my audition, because I asked him about that, told me in my audition that he was going to treat me like any of his performance majors, because that was important to him. 
so I, I knew going into his studio that that was the expectation. I can't say it was the same in all of my classes, but I, I certainly think from him where I was spending the majority of my time playing my own primary instrument, it did feel that way. But I'm still trying to figure out exactly how I feel about that. And now that I'm teaching, I'm playing less saxophone, obviously, but I, I still, it's an important part of what I'm doing and I'm teaching lessons. So I'm still on my toes doing that all the time. Uh, but the actual methods classes, I think they were more oriented towards the curriculum um, and oriented towards devising your own teaching philosophy, less about the performance side of it itself, um, but really dependent on the professor, even the semester that you were with that professor, maybe it went back and forth a little bit. So that was my experience, at least. What do you think, Justin? Yeah, so my experience um, at JMU was a little interesting because right at the peak of my music education classes, COVID hit. So a lot of my uh, performance opportunities were thrown out the window, as a lot of people's were. So it was kind of like Tim was saying, it was very philosophy driven as much as we could do over Zoom. But I will say, as I'm, I'm finding myself applying things in the classroom, I'm applying less and less things that I learned in my music ed classes and more things that I learned as a performer in different ensembles, rehearsal techniques, things like that, because there's so many things as a teacher that you aren't able to learn unless you do it. So I'm, I mean, I'm still learning every day. So I would say it was even, but I had a kind of interesting um, experience that not a lot of people had. I would, I would sort of fall in line with where Tim was in terms of my general music classes, very much based on being an educator, first and foremost. In my studio classes, it was less, less focused on performance than I think in other studios and more focused on framing it. If you're an education person, framing it on how you would work with a student on this specific thing. And obviously performance was a big part of it, but we really framed it in the context of educating. I think that went two ways too. Noah it mentions being said, like framing it in a, oh, you education students, you know, pay attention to this. A lot of the performance students felt that that often was not appropriate. They wanted to be included in that conversation too. Because if you could teach it, you can perform it. So I remember sitting in a lot of concert band settings where the conductor would say that. And then one of the performance majors, you know, roll their eyes like, why doesn't that apply to me? How much would you say that your classes focused on the classroom management piece? I'll say not really at all, personally, with my experience. And like I said earlier, that is just something that you just have to get in the classroom and experience and have to physically manage a classroom. Um, we could talk about strategies all day, but every kid is different. And until you get to experience what it's like being in the classroom, then it's, it's really hard to uh, boil it down just to a few things of how to do it, I guess. Yeah, I would almost, I would definitely agree. And I almost think it would have been more beneficial to have us have to like role play classroom management where we can be like, all right, you're going to just be the most obnoxious kid in the world right now. And your peer is going to have to try to diffuse this and redirect and tackle it because it was very much a conversation of, hey, you're going to have difficult students. All right, like, moving on. <laughs> I definitely felt going into student teaching, like when I talked to all my friends that were also going into it, or when we really started teaching too, that was the big question mark for us. Like, I, I feel prepared to, to do this, but am I prepared to actually do this by myself? <laughs> that was the, the question. I really resonate with what Justin said about, like, you, you do kind of have to just be in the situation. You know, like, I know when I first got out of college, I felt like, man, we didn't talk about classroom management at all. Like, I wish we talked about that. 
But like looking back on it, I was like, we could have talked about it every day, all day. But until you were like actually doing it and dealing with like kind of the insane things that happens, especially in the middle school classroom, it's really I don't think anyone really can prepare you by just talking about it. So I like no, I like your idea of role play like that would have been super helpful or even just like and I'm, I'm now I went to a different college than you guys. But like we didn't get into the classroom very much until like right at the end of, of education. So like, I, I don't know, just just seeing someone in action a little bit more and seeing them deal with the situation because like I feel like we did practicums and, or like, you know, and we did observations. But I feel like our our professor like cherry picked like the best behaved classes from the best behaved programs. So we would go and have a very rosy picture of like what what it was going to be like. I, I kind of wish we rolled up into like the inner city school with like high poverty rates and a lot of like tough kids from tough families and like and see how that teacher deals with some of those situations, you know, and we we just went to all these like super well-behaved classes, which is fine. But I mean, I feel like you, you can't really get it until you either see someone doing it or you get to do it yourself. So I don't know. I, I don't know if there's like a solution necessarily, but it would be great if like student teachers could could just get get that experience in person before they get to student teaching. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I, I had several people that made it most of the way through the music ed program. And then the more times they spent in the classroom, they were like, yeah, I don't actually want to do this. And then they switched their majors. <laughs> do you guys know anyone that did that? I know that we did not step into a I did not step into a classroom. Maybe my peers did until my sophomore year. So I was removed an entire year. And also it's kind of a good thing. I think if you come out of a high school and you're immediately observing other high schools, is not helpful. You need to be observing much younger ages. So the first practicum I ever did was elementary school. My mind was blown after that. But yes, to get back to your original question, I don't think I, I knew anyone that backed out of like the last second, but I definitely knew people that were panicking immediately once they got there. And the frustrating part is the advice, sorry, the advice is usually, oh, well, next year, you know, you need to come out of the gate a little harder on them. Or next year, this routine needs to be in place. Well, you're going to wait six months to get to next year, right? So definitely that. And a lot of us put our heads together and talked in the summer after our first year and said, what are you doing differently? What's going to be the, the difference? So definitely a lot of that. So I, I think it's interesting you mentioned like you didn't have much experience till you were a sophomore. So one of our local colleges, Mary Baldwin, they have their freshmen do like long-term placements at schools. So like I, I had this kid a few years ago that she was in my, she was like essentially student teaching. So she was with me most of the day for like, I don't know, I want to say it was like eight or eight or nine weeks as a freshman. So I don't know how they swung that, but I will say that was a, a that was a learning experience for that student because, you know, they were just a high school kid. And sometimes she would show up in like pajama pants. And I was like, yeah, we, can, we can't be doing that. <laughs> I remember one time, like she like just didn't show up. And I was like, man, I, I, I wonder where she is. And like 1030 rolls around and I get uh, an email or it was like a text or something. But I was like, oh, sorry, I slept in. Can I just work from home today? And I was like, do you? Do you want me to send the kids to your house? Like, I, how do you envision teaching from from home? Now, this is pre-pandemic, right before Zoom and all that. And, you know, and I, I don't, you know, I think that was just just a maturity thing. Right. I'm sure if that person enrolled in as a senior, it probably would have been a different story. But, you know, it's an 18 year old. And I was like, oh, man, like they clearly were not ready to be in like like a full time placement kind of position just yet. You know, I think they were, you know, they were being a college freshman. So that was an interesting experience. But. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know if there's like a solution there. People also graduate thinking that music education is the program they came from. And like that's where it is everywhere. And that's the job that they're going to get immediately. And that's where they want to end up. Um, and you need to have your eyes open to the whole, you know, observe lessons, teachers, observe elementary teachers, observe middle teachers, observe guitar teachers if you've never played the guitar before. So I, I think that is really important for those freshmen to be doing. And I wish that I had a practicum experience my freshman year. So I could have seen, just been exposed to more of that earlier. I feel like that would have changed my perspective a lot going into my. And I almost, I almost worry that I definitely agree. I almost worry that with the overwhelmed state, a lot of us are in as freshmen in college. For some of us, that'll be the pushing over the edge point where if we go to like a really rowdy classroom freshman year, some kids are going to see that and just go, oh man, like I can't do this. But I also wish we could have more of a progression than it seems like suddenly sophomore year. All right, practicums. I wish I do wish from the get go, maybe second semester freshman year, we're out in classrooms and we can just ramp it up each semester instead of just what seems like like it's just a flat line and then here's practicums and then like I wish we had more of a progression to student teaching. Just kind of ease them into it a little bit more. Well, let's talk a little bit about methods classes. Do you guys feel that your methods classes uh, were adequate enough to prepare you for teaching beginning band in particular? Personally, I felt that I learned a lot in my methods classes. Like, like I said, I hate to bring COVID up again, but a lot of my methods classes were online. But what I did learn, I felt like by the time that I was already in the classroom, that information was at the back of my head. And I just, I could not like bring it to the front of my brain to remember what I was supposed to do. And there's just so much going on when you're starting to student teach, like actually being in front of children for the very first time, that kind of stuff is hard for you to remember. So I say in some ways it was extremely beneficial, but in other ways, I I still sit here today and I, I just can't remember a lot of the things that I learned in those classes. For me, methods classes didn't always prepare them, but I also can't blame methods classes for not like method classes benefited me from like the three or four golden pieces of knowledge that I picked up over a quarter or over a semester in a methods class that I was able to bring into my classroom. There's definitely a lot of the minutia that just got lost beyond like, you know, the stuff that you review, like playing all the different instruments that stays in your head because you practice it. But most of the minutia of the methods classes slowly lost. Uh, I appreciated that my methods classes taught me how to think about learning and what it looks like in different classrooms. So I think that that was the key because you you don't know what the gig is going to be. And teaching beginning band at my school versus teaching beginning band at somebody else's school is still not the same gig. And there are different parts of that toolkit that you have to pick up from each location. So those methods classes did teach me how to go about collecting that information, how to structure my curriculum. Like what I learned about creating a scope and sequence and about winding information forward and backwards applies to any of these classrooms that I could be in. If I got an orchestra job, for example, I would have done the same approach to how I put together my curriculum. But yeah, those small details, maybe I didn't pick those up, but the, the skill set of learning how to collect those and put that together into a curriculum and shaping that and how we shape and think about that did help a lot, if if that makes sense. Yeah, I would say, I'd say for me, like, you know, like a lot of college students, like I really, I really only played a couple instruments before college, right? I played a couple woodwinds in middle school before I switched to percussion. And like, I think methods classes were really useful for just figuring out 
like here's here's how other instruments like function like here's how they make sound you know like picking up a french horn for the first time my mind like exploded it's like wait what you know what i mean i think it if if i had to make a change i would i think it'd be really great if student teaching if everyone could student teach with a middle school teacher in the fall and actually i i had two student teachers this fall is the first time i have ever had a fall student teacher this year we had two and it was so great because they rolled in like the end of the second week of school. So we had just started getting the instrument out of the case, right? We had just started producing our first sounds and they got to see like that whole process of like stuff, stuff that's like, it's like impossible to teach ahead of time. Like if you have your kid, if you just say, hey, open your instrument case, like half of them won't know how to open it and the other half will open it upside down and everything will fall out. You know, like that's something that like a college professor probably isn't going to be able to even warn you about, like that this is going to happen, you know, but like when you actually like get into the situation, you're like, oh, my gosh, I really do have to break this down to like the smallest tiny level. And it was really great having two student teachers in the fall this year because I felt like they got to see that whole process and all the, like the tiny little details that go into like teaching an 11 year old who's never played music to how to handle this like technical device. Right. That's very complicated. So, man, I'd, yeah, I'd, I wish I had had that experience, you know, because then you like are actually in the field and like seeing someone do it and seeing seeing how it's done in the early stages. Next question. Let's see. Are there any college experiences you guys have had? And it doesn't have to mean your, your music program necessarily, but any college experiences you had that you feel like really helped prepare you for being an educator? I would say my first practicum ever. Are we? It's fine to say names. Yeah, if it's a positive thing, I'd say. Yeah, OK. My first practicum was at Pence Middle School with Melissa Hartberry. And the second I walked into the room, she basically threw a clarinet at me. It was like, you're in Woodwind Tech, right? And I was like, yeah. She's like, all right, play clarinet. And I sat down and played clarinet with them. And I was like, oh, this is like, this is awesome hands on. I was so worried I would get there and I would understand her reasoning. But I would just kind of like be in a corner. And just be watching from um, a super detached point. But the second I walk in, just like, sit with the kids, play with them. And that really helped kindle my my energy for teaching a lot more than an alternate practicum experience might have. Maybe not an experience, but something that I think all colleges need to prioritize. Education, music education, all of them need to prioritize getting current teachers in the classroom as guests. Or to talk to these classes much more frequently. Because we got some of those teachers later on when I was at JMU and we latched onto them instantly because they just knew so much and they were in the field currently in the classroom in a way that our other professors that if they were in the classroom a couple years ago or decades ago, it's, it's just not quite the same. So what I learned from some of those professors, like when Amy Birdsong came straight from her high school gig, what she was able to tell us was like golden information. Greg Thomas, when he came from his high school gig, just golden information that we really, you don't get in other ways. So those professors in particular, those that have taught in the last five years or were currently teaching taught me so, so, so much. Not that what the other professors didn't have to say wasn't valuable, but that it was immediately relevant and it was directly applicable to what we were learning in the classroom. So if any college can convince these people to come in once, twice a week, you know, have a guest frequently from very different schools, it would be unbelievably helpful because it helped me a ton. Yeah, you guys are so so lucky, JMU. You have, you know, Will DeBack and Amy Birdsong, who both spend a lot of time in the classroom. 
and they know just so much about education and like the real side of education. And not not all universities have that, you know? Like I remember my first two years of college, none of the music ed people that I had as college professors had ever actually taught in the classroom. Like they went straight from like bachelor's, master's, doctorate, now I'm a college professor, right? So I had like a theoretical understanding sort of of how things worked, but they didn't have any experience. And then my junior year, they brought in a guy who'd been in the classroom for like 25 years, like down down in like some tough parts of Florida, right? And they brought him up. This is doc, Dr. Wayne Gallops. And they brought him up. And I remember when he, when he, my very first class with him, he laid us this like three inch binder. He photocopied us a three inch binder. It had the most insane things in there. Like it had a letter from a teacher who'd been falsely accused of sexual misconduct from a student who ended up getting fired from their school division. Even though it was the whole thing was proven false, the school division still fired him. And he wrote a letter of warning to like his other fellow educators. And like that was in the binder. And I was like, what? Oh, my God. Like that was complete. Like none of my other college professors were like, anywhere near on that level of practicality of like, here's like the here's like the real deal. Right. Like and he just came in just dropping all this knowledge from like two decades in the classroom. And I just soaked all of that up, man. I mean, and he was the one that really like like hammered into our heads. He was like your success in the classroom has everything to do with your routines and procedures. He's like, if you don't have routines and procedures, it does not matter how much about music that you know. You won't be able to, to, to teach any of it, you know? And he really, really like impressed that on us. And I'm, I'm so fortunate that he was able to come in like halfway through my college experience because I felt like I got a little taste of real life before actually getting out into the field. I just think the college experience in general just prepared me for trying to balance so many things at a time. You know, we we talked so much, you know, one of your old podcast episodes was about work-life balance and how to manage that. And, you know, as college students, we're, we're taking, you know, sometimes 21, 22, 23 credits as music ed students and trying to balance how, you know, have a social life with that as well. And I think learning how to do that will still be successful was definitely very beneficial in my life now as I'm trying to manage my my, you know, my social life and my, my work life, which isn't always easy. Well, let's, let's move right along to like actually student teaching, right? So did any of you have a relationship with your cooperating teacher before you started student teaching? I see, I see a lot of head shakes. I will say I student taught also at Harrisonburg High School with Daniel Upton, and I was on his marching band staff prior to student teaching. But I think the wheels were already turning before I was even hired. So other than that, no. Yeah. So you knew a lot of the kids before you before you went up there. Yeah. So I got I got a few months with them before I even started, which was a really cool experience, which I'm glad that I did because I ended up leaving that placement about two months early to go to the current gig where I'm at right now. Okay. so if I remember correctly, like you you got hired as like a long term sub, but that sort of counted as the rest of your student teaching. Is that right? Yeah. So. I got hired as a long-term sub in around April, and I was able to have my, I, I can't even remember what it's called by now, but my advisor, like I would record stuff and send it to him, and he would still have to give me, you know, feedback on what I was doing. But it was it was definitely an interesting situation. It, it did count for my student teaching, but I was getting paid while doing it, which I'm sure all the student teachers wishes, wish they could get paid while, you know, teaching for five or six months. Oh my God, I wish so much that student teachers did not have to pay tuition while they student teach. 
Oh my God. I, it, this, this just burns me up every time I have a student teacher, right? They're paying like seven, 10 grand to student teach, right? But here's the thing. Me as the cooperating teacher, I get paid $90 total. Oh wait, no, they upped it this year. I got $120, okay, to host a student teacher for seven weeks, right? And you're, I'm spending like, you know, eight to 10 hours a day with this person, like trying to train them and try to teach them how to be, be a good teacher and trying to lay my 17 years of experience on them. I get paid $120, right? The university supervisor that comes and observe gets paid like $300 to show up a couple times and, you know, observe or whatever. Where does all the rest of the money go, right? Where, where does it all go? Like, it's, it, just, it just makes me so mad that like you're paying all of that money, right? Like, I don't know. If they're going to have to charge you money, like I think the cooperating teachers should probably get more of it. But almost all of it just goes just to university coffers, I guess. I mean, if I if I have my way, like I don't even need to get paid for being a cooperating teacher if like the student teachers would not have to pay tuition, right? Like if you guys wouldn't have to pay tuition or if it was like very minimal, I mean, I would do it for free, whatever. I like doing it. But it just burns me up that you guys pay several thousand dollars, but it doesn't go anywhere, right? Oh, it just, it just makes me so mad. I think with the teacher shortage, if it keeps going the way that it is, they're going to have to make some changes. They're going to have to be some changes, I think, for teacher retention. Yeah, actually. So in my master's program, we did a lot of studies on kind of like the impending teacher shortage catastrophe that is quickly upon us. And what I learned was really interesting is it I forget the exact percentage. I know all percentages are like made up on the spot, but it's something like 70 something percentage of first year teachers get a job in the school division that they student taught in, like or or like really close by. And and I was thinking about that in terms of like college towns. Right. So like any school division near JMU is going to get a lot of people from JMU. Right. As potential applicants and, and stuff like that. But these school systems that are kind of out like in more in the middle of nowhere, right? They get like very few applicants, like very few applicants. No one's student teaching out there. And a lot of college students don't don't want to move out, you know, really far away from from more developed, you know, like urban centers and stuff. And those school divisions are the ones who are hurting the most is, is the really rural school divisions. It's just really hard to get people. But if you're by a university, you, you get those students in as student teachers, you know. So I did see how what 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 county was I think it's Loudoun County is now offering teachers like supplemental housing assistance, which is crazy. Now, I don't know. I mean, a one bedroom apartment in Loudoun is probably like two and a half grand a month or something. But but I think that's really great. I, and more schools, I think, might have to start doing something like that because the cost of living is just going crazy. And that could be a whole podcast in and of itself, like the, the finances of, of teaching. But I think it's cool that Loudoun's at least trying trying to address it and trying to help supplement housing costs to, to get more people in. Well, let's move on a little bit. Here's, here's an interesting question here. What do you guys think the most shocking thing was to you when you started student teaching specifically? Like, were there any moments that you were just like, oh my God, either positive or negative or neutral? I, I will be honest, on the second day of student teaching, I got into the car with my fellow student teacher, John Donnell, and I just cried. And it was just like on the way to Shelburne in the morning. And it wasn't because I saw something that was crazy. The first day was so overwhelming with this bustle of nonstop music in a good way, but also in a, holy crap, like, that is so much. It was just weird. We're so, for all that, even with a ton of credits, 
we at times we still make time for self during the day. Student teaching, there's not it's not in teaching in general, it's not really about making time for yourself. Time for yourself comes when there are no students. So that was shocking to me, just that the second day of student teaching, I was like, oh my gosh, that was like non-stop. I'll say in my high school student teaching experience, other than teaching a few band classes, I had to teach a music technology class. And I just I just was very ignorant. I, I just didn't know a lot about it. And the teacher just was like, hey, you're going to teach this entire unit on Foley sound and like do all this. Like, and I, had, I didn't know anything about it. So that was just very like, wow, like I might have to teach something that I, I really don't have not a lot of knowledge about. But I guess that's what that's what we have to do as teachers. A lot of time is improvise and learn on the fly to, you know, further our students. But thankfully, I haven't had all I've taught so far. It's banned, but I never know what's coming down the road. So I'm going to say, like, I'm still continually amazed at how much stuff I do that is just not teaching. It's like 60% of my job is not teaching. Just and I knew there were like non-teaching assignments, common TAs, like duties that you have. But like I have, I get to school 15 minutes earlier than I want to. I get to leave 15 minutes earlier, but I get there 15 minutes earlier to do a duty and then I have another one later in the day. And then I have a third one later in the day. Like, it's kind of amazing how much I'm doing that is not, you know, what you apply to do. And Justin's 100% right. Like, I could very much be teaching another class any single year. They could come, the district could come in and say, we're going to start offering piano. So we're adding it to this grade level. Or you're going to have to start teaching technology, you know. So I saw that a little bit at Shelburne with the duties that you guys had. And at my next school, too, that guy was out of his classroom. Like, every second he wasn't teaching, he was somewhere else in the building. Is rough um, to see and you make it work. But wow, did not see that coming. Yeah, I'm glad you guys bring that up because, you know, at least at least in our area, you know, we're not not in the northern Virginia area. Like we're, we're a little out here, a little, a little bit more rural. Like a lot of the jobs that are open are band plus something else, you know, band plus choir, band plus orchestra, band plus, you know, it might be band at the elementary school or sorry, the middle school and band at the high school. And you got to go back and forth. It might be piano. It might be music technology. Maybe there's a guitar class. I know at a couple of our high schools, they have more students in guitar class than they have in band class, you know, and it's, it's a whole thing. And you coming out of college, you might not have those experiences. Like you can kind of figure it out if you need to, you know, um, man, who did I see this week? The choir director at Wilson high school, Austin Gilbert. And he was a, he was a band, he was a band guy, you know? And he, he got this choir gig and he is absolutely crushing it. I saw his kids play downtown Stanton over the weekend and they were awesome. Like they were really good. And I helped him record his group for assessment last year. And I was like, man, you were a band guy. Like, how'd you learn all this stuff? You know, like, and I guess, you know, he just, he just learned on the fly. Right. And he, he's doing a great job. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of crazy. Like you never know what the gig's going to be. I mean, it might be the exact thing you want and it might be a whole mix of a whole mix of things, you know? Like I would encourage college students to try to get as many of those different experiences as you can, especially if you're a band person, choir and guitar. If you can get some experiences in those areas, it'll make you more marketable and, and more able to land a job, you know, because out, out of the gate, like you just need the job, right? Okay, let's move on a little bit. How would you guys say, did you have an easy or a hard time building relationships with the students at your student teaching placement specifically? and or fitting into the culture when you arrived. And I know it's a really difficult thing because as a student teacher, you're walking into someone else's program 
and not for a very long time, you know, like seven weeks in most cases. Would you guys find it easy or difficult to build relationships with the kids and and fit into the culture that was there when you got there? Um, I, th- I think that one of the more important parts of student teaching is finding your podium personality, like who you are as a teacher. And I was not successful in that in student teaching. And part of that is it's really hard when you walk into somebody else's culture and their expectations to have their kids respond to you differently than they're used to responding. Um, like when I was in the Shelburne band room, it's a very organized and regimented, you know, I mean, they have fun, right? But it's very much, this is the expectation and they respond to it really well because they know that's the expectation. So I had to fit that exact specification and there's you know there's a little bit of leeway but i had to fit that specification and it was glad i did i learned a ton but then you walk into your own program where there either is a culture that is completely different than you're comfortable with and you have to like pull it away from that or a culture that is non-existent maybe it's not there at all they haven't had a band program for a while if you walk into a job like that and you're defining a culture right so that was extremely weird for me, I think, going from two different student teaching placements to a third place and do it again, not knowing who I really was in the podium. And it took me months, if not my first year and a half, to really get comfortable with what that program culture was going to be and how I was going to do that in my classroom. Because you never really get an adequate assessment. Yeah, Tim, I mean, I completely agree with what you're saying, because when you get that first job, you're going to you know, inevitably have kids that were used to a different teacher whether it's in high school where they've known a teacher for three years or middle and high school, we've had the same teacher for, you know, five, six years. And you're not always going to win all the kids over when you're starting that job. But getting that experience of having to try to adapt to the circumstance that you're put in, I will say that greatly helped me in my in my circumstance because I came in, you know, partway through the school year and I was like, do I need to completely change these students' expectations and procedures, or do I just kind of do what they've been doing? Like, you know, kind of like we do in student teaching, we kind of need to do what, you know, it's ultimately the director's program. So we're going to follow their guidelines, but how can I make that my own without like being overbearing or losing the kids? I will say I had such, it was a beneficial bit of confusion on the kids' parts a lot of them didn't realize that the middle school band director was moving up and up to the high school until they saw me on the first day of school and they were like, who, who are you? But they had exactly zero seconds to form to spend the summer dreading about the new teacher or all of this. Most of them saw me and were like, you're different. And I'm like, yeah, I'm different. And it's like the other half of that that's interesting is my eighth grade band, their middle school band director is almost always in the room. So they're like, even at times when there's a bit of a pull away from my culture, the culture of respect that he instilled is still there. And they don't, they know not to act up with both of us in the room, which I think is a unique and interesting experience. Well, let's, um, you guys hit on this a little bit, but let's talk about classroom management for a second. So in what ways is the classroom management of your cooperating teacher different than what you find yourself preferring now as being your own teacher in the classroom? So I'll say coming right out of student teaching, I tried all of the things that I learned from both of my cooperating teachers with my classrooms, and some of them worked, some of them didn't, because ultimately it's just a different environment with different students that are not the same as where you were before. So I think 
classroom management is a daily trial and error of what works for these group of students at this particular moment. And I will say going into my second year teaching, coming out of my first year, when I got a new batch of students, I, you know, I had to, for some of them, I had to completely figure out new ways of, of, of trying to manage the classroom just because it's just different students. So some things I learned, like one thing I learned from you, Charlie, if, if you're having a class that's really struggling with following instructions, you line them up outside, you wait for everyone to be quiet, you raise your hand, you say, hey, we're going to walk into the classroom without saying a word or making a sound. And you walk them in there. If somebody makes a sound, you say, nope, we're going back outside. We're lining up. And it's and you said it's it's not it's important that you know you're not trying to punish them. You're just making sure they know it's important to follow instructions correctly. So it just ultimately it just depends. It just depends on the students. I think I Justin touched on this, but you can't replicate some of what your cooperating teachers did because you're not them. Like there are some activities that some middle school bands do that are like over the top. Like they can organize a fun social night for their kids where they're bringing a bouncy house into the gym and they're feeding it. So some things you can't do because I'm not you. So it just doesn't work the same. I will say I, it's like we talk about routine a lot in the macro of I'm going to do this every day. But the routine and repetition that really gets to me is not just I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to do this multiple times a day until it is done right. And that's like a big thing with my students that they have soon understood from many times. All right, we're going back out to the hallway. We're going to try this again. I'm never, I'm never mad with them. I keep my tone upbeat, but I will straight up tell them we are going to do this until we do it right. I'm going to be stubborn about this. It's not because I'm a jerk, but some things have to go a certain way. And I would say part of the classroom management that varied from student teaching that doesn't really work for me right now just stems from consistency. I think at Shelburne, from my short experience, you know, the week-to-week behavior followed a pretty consistent pattern at that point. With, With a lot of my classes, even if on Monday, we are on top of it. Beautiful behavior, well done, fist bumps all the way on the way out. Tuesday is like, all right, I have notes on my phone of like eight parents I got to call and talk to about behavior. And seven of them are kids who have never had issues before. And I'm just not sure what's going on, but like it is, it is startling to me. And teachers will say like, oh, it's a full moon tonight. Like kids are going to be crazy. And I'm just like, why is this happening? Why is why why did on Tuesday we decided let's let's get a little crazy with it? Yeah, and one thing I think it's it's important. I, I think for me to vocalize to you guys who've all who've all been with with me and John is like one what what the culture that we have that you guys saw when you came in took a long time to get to, right? Like my my first like three or four years at Shelburne looks nothing like it did when you guys were with us, right? Like a lot of the more like disciplined, more like scripted parts of the classroom that we have now, none of that was was the case. And some of that was like when when I walked into the job, I tried to keep things consistent from the previous two directors because there was two directors before me and they both left at the same time. And then me and a guy named Zach Wadsworth, we came in at, you know, at the same time. And I didn't know Zach before we started the job, you know, and we sort of had to like, we try to keep as many things the same as we could. 
and then slowly started to figure out what what do we want the culture to be. So it took a long time to to get it to where it is now. So I feel like I need to vocalize that. And the other thing I need to vocalize is like we've had some really rough groups, you know, and and I think a lot of you guys touched on this, but like we we've had some really rough groups. Like I've had seventh or eighth grade groups some years that I've had to line up in the hallway a couple times a week because they came in like yelling and screaming and whatever. And I'm like, nope, we're going, we're going back outside. We're going to try this again, you know? And like the, the last couple of years, I've been very blessed to not have a group that rough, but every like three or four years, I have a group that come in. That's, that's just that rough, you know? And I almost have to treat them kind of like I do my sixth graders at the beginning of the year sometimes to be like, Hey, you might be going crazy in your other classes, but, but we're not going to do it here. This is the way we got to do things here. So it, it takes a long time to get to that point. And occasionally you have groups that are so rough that it, it still doesn't quite work for them or, or it takes longer to. So I just wanted to give you guys encouragement to like, you know, keep waiting. Out. And, and, and no, and Justin, you guys haven't had a full cycle yet, right? Like, so one, once you're there three years and all, all the kids are yours and they've all only known you, it really is a game changer. Because at that point, you can do whatever you want. And they'll be like, yeah, and they'll, then they'll be into it, you know, like, but it does take, it does take a few years to kind of cycle out the kids who, who came in with, with different expectations, you know? I will say that being in my third year, sometimes it feels like the kids had three different directors, like over three years, because my first year changed so radically to my second year has changed so radically to my third, just in terms of how I like structure the beginning of the year or how I teach things. I mean, like, there's stuff now that my eighth grade, like they, they like don't do it. And I'm like, you don't you remember this? And like, yeah, you never you definitely never talked about that. And I'm like, oh, oh man, like, come on. Like that was my, you know, my first month or whatever. And I missed that or something. So kind of observing that now. It's kind of funny. I feel like three different people sometimes. Yeah, honestly, I think that's a great thing. I, Tim, one of the things I appreciate about you the most is that you are so hungry for knowledge. And like that's and then that's why I, I know that you're just like crushing it and will continue to excel and get better. You're so thirsty for knowledge. Like you still ask me questions like all the time. You know, and that b- believe it or not, a lot of teachers don't do that. They get into like their second or third year and they're like, all right, I'm not going to ask anybody for help anymore. And like and really all, all three of you like have reached out with like questions and like, hey, how do you do this? Or like, what do you think about X? And that I, I, just, I love that thirst for knowledge because that means you're going to continue to get better and grow. So, yeah, I just I just really appreciate that about all you guys, because believe it or not, some teachers don't do that. Once they get their own gig, it, they don't want input. They don't want they don't want advice or feedback. I had a teacher or a professor tell me once that teachers statistically peak in like year seven because that's when they think like I've got it figured out. I'm untouchable. And they just get worse progressively for like 25 years. And that just sounds like the worst nightmare to ever exist. So if I ever stop asking questions, just beat me over the head. because <laughs> I, re- I refuse to go out of year seven. One of my history teachers in high school told me that like if like a civilization is either advancing or it's declining, like there's no such thing as a civilization that just they just flat sign. It's, it's either getting better or it's getting worse, you know, and, and there's really no in between. I sort of feel the same way about about teaching, right? You're you're growing or you're getting worse. Like, I don't I don't think that you're, you can just stay kind of in the middle. OK, let's move down the question list a little bit. Did you guys get to conduct a performance at both of your student teaching placements? So at Shelburne, I was lucky enough to get to conduct a piece at our concert assessment performance which was such a great experience. And then at my high school, I got a lot of conducting opportunities. We did a, t- a Tiny Tots concert. So I I conducted about, you know, three or four concerts with them. 
And I'll say the assessment concert conducting performance was such a game changer because I feel like that nerves of not knowing what it's like going into my first year teaching. I'm like, okay, I've done this before. I know what it's like. I know what this feels like. This is familiar. And that, I mean, that was just so beneficial. And, and thank you, Charlie, for, you know, being brave enough to allow me to the opportunity to have that responsibility. Dude, you absolutely crushed it too, man. I, you know, I was thinking, I was, I was like, man, I really want to program the red cape again. But like, I love your rendition of it so much. I was like, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> I, like, I don't know if I can program. Like, I, I have to have enough years where I forget what you did with it before I feel like I could do it. You just did such a good job. The kids just, they sounded amazing. It was so good. Noah, how about yourself? I, here's, here's a good thing. I'm struggling to remember because of how many times I got to conduct with, with the middle school in particular. I feel like I kept getting callbacks to come and conduct for them again, which is like a blessing to, I think I conducted three or four performances at the middle school. And I also had the spring concert with the high school, which was just like a lot of stage time and really put it into perspective. Like as much time as we spent behind closed doors, working on this music, the next three minutes is all most of these people are going to know about our work. So you got to make it count and it's got to be worth something, but all of the chances to perform really or to conduct really put that in perspective. Now, Tim, you had a, a, a little bit of a different experience because you were with us like 2021, like the the year where I think like half our kids were virtual and half were coming in person. But you didn't get one one actual performance w- with us in a year that we had no other performances. So could you tell us a little bit about that? And if you got anything at your other placement? Yeah, that was so fun. Uh, it was eighth grade graduation. So we did it outside. And the funny part was that we were you were hybrid at Shelburne while I was there. Maybe that changed like right after I left. I can't remember. But you were hybrid. And I remember being there, meeting the band for the first time in person because you invited kids that were virtual. So we're standing there like getting all the seats out for the kids and like someone will walk up and you're like, man, what's up? Like, I haven't seen you in like 18 months. Like, see how you sound. So the first time hearing that band all together, I think, was at graduation. Like, we warmed them up, and it was like, all right, here we go. So I had had a chance to conduct a quarter of your band or a third of your band in the classroom, but then putting it all together at once is pretty awesome. It's kind of what it's like now when you get both of your seventh grade classes in one room during Exploratories one day. You're like, whoa, like what is this? But that was so fun. And then I immediately left Shelburne for my next placement that was entirely virtual. So I did not see a kid for four weeks. And then it was hybrid where they had class once a week. So I only saw kids in person like four times for, for that class. So I did not get to conduct any at the high school, which is fine. I don't think I lost anything because of that. It's, it's really, it's the process of teaching it that you need in student teaching. Like conducting is one thing, especially if you're, if you're student teaching somewhere that already has like an outstanding program, you're not going to learn very much like driving their, their top band because you're not going to have that top band when you get where you're going. So the process of teaching at the high school is helpful, but I don't think I miss anything too detrimental by not conducting there. But absolutely, the middle school one was so fun and a pretty good preview of what it's actually like when you only get 45 minutes with your kids and the gym teachers will only release them once before the concert. So uh, pretty awesome. Yeah. And like that whole that whole performance was like kind of unplanned. Right. So like in the 2020, 2021 school year, we we pretty much weren't allowed to do performances like at all. Right. So like our like fall our like our winter concert and our spring concert there were like all those virtual you know youtube performances that john and i put together but then like yeah at the eighth grade graduation which was outside 
the principal approached us and we're like, hey, you want to play something? And I was like, are we allowed to do that? And she was like, yeah. I was like, absolutely. I want to do it. <laughs> yes, let's let's do that. You know, and it was like totally unplanned. And it was, man, I know some of us are going to have flashbacks to 2020 now, but like it was so great to see some of those kids that we like and we hadn't seen since they were like sixth or seventh graders and then they roll in as eighth graders, you know, and getting to see them. And, oh man, I just remember it was so good for some of those kids. Like, ah, man, I remember some of those kids, I don't want to drop names, but like some of those kids were like, you could, who were all virtual and you could tell they were really struggling. Like, like with a lack of socialization, you could tell they were really struggling and their parents wanted them to be all virtual and they were, and they got to come in for like that one performance for eighth grade graduation and actually see their friends in person and just like, just like the look on their face and, and just like how much their whole world like lit up. Like, oh man, I'm so happy the principal asked us to do that. Like that was so meaningful for their, for those kids. And I'm really glad that you, Tim, you got that experience to conduct because I guess that, that was it for you if your other placement didn't have any, any concerts or anything. So I'm, I'm so glad you got to do that. You also, of course, did a, a virtual rendition of that piece as well that, that we posted online, but I'm so glad you got to actually do it in front of the kids. Yeah. That virtual one was pretty funny. That's a story that I'll tell my kids in like 30 years. <laughs> when I was your age, I had to conduct it to an empty auditorium and then get all the feedback from John. That was really funny. He was like, you missed a cutoff. I'm like we're not filming again. I'm sorry. That's done. It's over. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So what, what advice would you guys have for a student who is getting ready to student teach? Like, would you have any advice as they prepare to be a student teacher in particular? If you're not teaching, you need to be observing. So like if there's a teacher work day, don't feel any shame asking your current cooperating teacher for a list of names. I think I asked you, who are like the top five people that I need to see this month before I leave middle school in this area? Like, who do I need to go see? Um, And by process of observing other teachers, I just learned an unbelievable amount. And I could bring that back to you. If you were my cooperating teacher, I can go at this other school. He was teaching dynamics completely different than you taught it. Why do you do it this way versus, you know, why do you do it that way? So if you're getting ready to student teach, yes, you're being assigned to one school, but get into that community school. If that's your district at the state level, you know, ask for a list of names. Who should I go see? Who is crushing it and doing that really well? Um, You're not limited to that one room. You should considered going out to as many places as you possibly can. And that goes beyond student teaching. I did more observation, I think, post-graduation than I did when I was in college because I I started to see that value in it. I'm still observing all the time now because that is more helpful than anything else I'm doing. Well, I'll say before you go to student teaching, try to get an opportunity to get in the classroom that you're going to be student teaching in because and also, if you're able to meet your cooperating teacher, because you don't want the first time that you do that to be the day of, you have too many things to worry about with students coming in there and all that kind of stuff. So I was lucky to, you know, get coffee with Charlie before I even, you know, saw any of the students and I got to ask him all the questions and um, asked him, you know, what do you want for me to be able to accomplish during this time and get an idea of what their program was like. So you're not going in there blind. So, and like I said, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to know my high school cooperating teacher ahead of time, but getting that opportunity to be in the classroom environment, seeing the band room, seeing where I'm going to be teaching before students are in there was extremely beneficial. I would almost say this is a mindset thing. Look at the opportunity to teach in what may be a different culture than you used to as a blessing instead of a curse. The idea of teaching 
in an environment that you're not used to is the perfect preparation. So since since you all had had John and I, I, I wanted to ask you a question about something. So for those of you listening, our very first assignment as cooperating teachers is for our student teachers to memorize every student's name by day five of student teaching with us. And we do make it a little bit easier. Like we give you guys like a Google Drive with all of the kids' pictures and their name as like the file name. And we download all that from PowerSchool, our attendance software. But your very first assignment is you have to learn all 220 whatever kids' names by day five. And on day five, we're going to put you in front of the kids and you're going to go down the row and name each kid by their name to their face. So, and, and I think this is really important, particularly not so much for student teaching necessarily, but when you get your, your first gig, the faster you learn those kids' names, the faster you're going to get buy-in. So I think it's really important for that skill. So uh, would anyone like to share your experience trying to do that? And uh, if you felt like it was successful or not, and if, and if you felt like it was helpful when you got your actual gig? Say a side benefit is I handled... First of all, going from 200 plus kids, I from 6th, 7th, and 8th, I have, I think, 67 kids total. So already, it was so simple. By the end of the week, had all the names. The kids were like, oh, that's crazy. You know my name. But like, just getting used to messing up a name and being able to recover gracefully versus making a big deal. Because I, it's burned into my brain. I think I'll remember it till I'm 89 years old. I messed up. A couple sixth grade, uh, what was it? it? Was I think it was clarinet. A couple sixth grade clarinet players' names, and I made a big deal where I was like, "I am so sorry." Like that was rude of me. Like all of this, and now even now, if I mess up a name, I'm good. All right, sorry, man. I'll get it tomorrow. Like we'll move on with it. Just like being able to recover gracefully from that is such a big, such a big deal. And I'll say it, and you know, applying it to my classroom. It was just such a great opportunity for me to create a relationship with my students automatically, just calling them by their name. They're like, oh, okay, I'm not just, you know, a face or I'm not just a person holding an instrument to you. I am this person. And I'm in the same situation as Noah where I'm not having to memorize 200 plus students' names. It's much less than that. But just doing that right off the bat was just so helpful for, you know, creating that relationship. When you're going to a new gig, it's really important to know you're not going to be able to teach anything, do anything with the students unless, until you build the relationships with them. And I think that that was learning that was just such a key part of creating that relationship and culture in my in my first job, which I'm still at. Now, Tim, you were you were in a, in the hybrid year. Did we did we do that with you or or not? I can't quite remember. You didn't. I totally cheated because I had all the Zoom boxes, so I don't think I got that. You told me you did that though, so I did it. But I'm going to tell you guys something insane as a filler anyways. My sixth grade this year, three sets of identical twins, two of those sets playing the same instrument. I am fighting for my life every day in sixth grade brass class. Tell those kids apart. It is so hard. And they get offended when I mess it up. I am an inch away from calling mom and saying, how do I tell your kids apart? Like, what do I do? Because there are two sets of identical on the same instrument. It ha- like the odds of that happening. It's so crazy that they're on the same instrument. I, I've had a lot of identical twins in my career, but they always pick different instruments. So it's like, <laughs> it's way easier. And they almost always have different hairstyles. And that's kind of how I like. No, 
these twins are the ones that like to dress up like one another. So I, it's, it's so bad. I have them on different sides of the rooms in like both classes. Cause I, I do them in rows right now. But even then, like they're probably messing with me. Like they probably change it every day and there's nothing I could do about it. So mean for them, man, to like dress identically also like, uh, oh my gosh. So I want to talk about the job hunt process. Do you guys have any advice for uh, someone who is going to begin the job hunting process soon and or maybe some resources they could pull from, be it their cooperating teacher or college professors or whatever, to kind of assist in that process? So any sort of like career hunt advice as people start looking for jobs soon? I would say don't try to put yourself in a box of saying, I'm only going to accept this job because more than likely you're not going to get that job. Now, I can't speak for me because I was lucky enough uh, to get the job that I wanted, but I know a lot of my friends and a lot of my colleagues, their first gig was not what they thought, but it led them to it led them to somewhere that they wanted to be. So if you only say, I'm only applying for high school band jobs in this state and this area, that's going to make your process extremely difficult. Yeah, I'm going to say, I'm going to go off of that. Leave no stone unturned and just check your expectations at the door. Because like I didn't I didn't know what Lancaster was before I applied for a job here. I had never heard of this place. I didn't know what the northern neck was. And it turns like I feel like I found a diamond in the rough. Like small, quiet place. We got we have one high school. We have one marching band that the whole county rallies around. And there's such like there's such a support for the arts here. And again, like this time, like Four months ago, five months ago, whatever. I didn't know what this place was. I couldn't point to it on a map. I couldn't, like, none of that. I couldn't pronounce it right. I was saying Lancaster in my interview, and they're going, it's Lancaster. It's like, and I'm like, awesome. But really just check your expectations at the door. Because most of the time, most of the time, they're just not accurate. Leave no stone unturned. I got a couple First, substitute teach frequently and often. I substitute taught in my second placement school district. And that opened some door. I mean, I was hired, fortunately, really early. So I it didn't quite go as far as I think student teaching there would have been helpful. But I I mean, I, I substitute taught there. And as jobs started to open in the area, my name was passed around because I'd been substituting in the chemistry classroom. I'd been in the business classroom. And they knew me as someone looking for a music job. So music jobs started opening and those got forwarded to me by people. And Noah said, like, no stone unturned. I had a massive spreadsheet of, like, all the school districts in Virginia with the hyperlink to their job app. And part of that is there is kind of, like, knowing your worth. There are one or two jobs that I thought about applying to, and then I read more deeply. And, like, one of them wasn't full-time. Like, I'm not applying to that one. Another one was one band class and, like, 13 piano classes. Like, yes, but maybe not the one that I want right now kind of thing. And the third thing, do your research on the school before you apply. I this got job that I have now. I looked up the school um, and I found their mission statement and I found that I really aligned with it and what they were trying to do. So I put together a cover letter that mentioned the key points of their you know, mission statement. And I said, I agree with you on these things. It aligns with my teaching philosophy a lot. I emailed that to the principal after I put in my application. She got back to me and said, you know, we'd love to interview. And then when I went in the room, I had done a little bit of research on her administrative team. And I knew that one of them you know, a special education background. I was able to ask about that and talk about that. And all it took was five minutes of researching the school before I got there. So it was really helpful for me to kind of know what's important to them and get a feel for what they were looking for in a teacher on their team. 
And also just to see if that was a school that I think I'd be successful with. And it has worked out amazing because I knew what was important to them and kind of what they were looking for. And it just happened to, you know, be what I believe in and what I'm looking for too. I mean, you guys hit on so, so many amazing things. Oh my God. Thank you so much for your amazing answers. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but like I did limit myself to one specific area and I was unsuccessful. So I'm, I'm really glad that, that both Justin and Noah touched on that. You know, when I graduated, uh, you know, I was engaged to be married. My wife and I have been dating for five years. So when I graduated, we were scheduled to get, I graduated in, De- in December of 2006 and we were supposed to get married in June of 2007. So I was like, all right, well, I, I need a job like now because she was a year behind me. So she was still going to be a college student for another year and a half. I was like, well, I need a job now and I have to live by JMU because that's that's where she goes to school. But there, there weren't any jobs open. <laughs> like there, there were no jobs open anywhere near JMU that year. And I was like, well, what am I, what am I going to do? And I ended up getting a job teaching math, you know, cause I, I had a math minor and that's, that's what was open. There were plenty of music jobs open in other parts of the state. I had one, I basically just could have walked in and, and had the job if I wanted to at a Pulaski County high school. Uh, down in Pulaski, Virginia, because I'd, I'd been their percussion instructor and they had a job opening and they're like, we want you. And I was like, I want to get married. I've been dating. I've been dating this girl for five years. We want to get married. So I, t- I you know, I was like, sorry. And I, I turned him down and I, and I moved up to Harrisonburg and there were no jobs. And I was like, well, I guess I'll teach math because uh, you know I need families first, right? Like I got to support my family. And I taught math for four years and, and I learned some valuable things. Like I learned a lot about classroom management. I learned a lot about administration. That could be a whole other topic for another episode. Good and bad administrators and make, make or break your program. So I learned a lot of things. And then my fifth year of teaching, I finally got to teach music. And I was like, oh, man, I finally get to do the thing that I like wanted to do all along. But I, I'm so glad you guys touched on that. Like if you box yourself into one area, there, there might not be anything in that area. And I think this is really hard for people, for people who are dating or, or married to somebody who's in the arts also. Because like if like if you're a math teacher, there's a math job open at every school in America every year. Every school in America has a math opening every year. If you're a math teacher, you can literally work, work wherever you want, wherever you want. No problem. But but the arts is not that way. You like typically you have one band director in a school and that's it. You know, like the, the person who was at Shelburne before me was there for 25 years. So if you wanted to teach band at Shelburne at some point in that time span, you were just going to be SOL. She was here for 25 years. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, it, the arts is so much more competitive right now than, than other, other areas. And it's really hard when you're, when you're dating somebody who's also going to be an arts teacher. Like my, my wife was an arts teacher, right? So like, it's really difficult. I know right now my friend Will Alderman just got a percussion gig in another state, but his wife teaches here at Mary Baldwin College, right? And so, so like they have two different teaching gigs in, in two completely different states. And at some point they want to be in the same state, but that's the gig that was open. And, and that can be so tough when you're in a relationship of being like, do, do we do the long distance relationship thing? Or does, does one of us not get to do what we want to do right now? You know, and that's a, that's a really tough call. And I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. That's something I'll just got to figure out as a couple. Right. But like, that's, that's a really, that's a really tough thing to kind of go through. So I'm glad, I'm glad you guys touched on that. Let's let's kind of wrap up with a with a positive note here. Now that you guys are all teaching for for in various different uh, quantities of years, what is something about the job that you find really rewarding 
right now. And if we could go in uh, backwards order of seniority and uh, start with Noah. Okay, I'm going to say just like getting getting to greet and say goodbye to the students at the door is one of my favorite things in the world. That's like I'm the fist bump guy in the school. The kids walk in the classroom and it's, you know, hey, their name, how's it going, fist bump. They're in the room on the way out. Exact same way. Hey, have a great day. I'll see you later. Fist bump. And it's just like seeing kids open up is worth the world to me because every single kid basically without fail started out this year waiting to see what I would be like and seeing them open up is just there's nothing more. There's nothing that puts a smile on my face more so. than Well, I'll say I do have a small portion of students, my eighth grade right now, I saw them right as they were finishing up being sixth graders and just seeing not only how they've grown as musicians, but part of my teaching philosophy, I don't, I don't see myself as just a music teacher. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be a role model for these students and help them be, you know, people and adults eventually. And just being able to see their growth as people is just amazing. I'm also, I'm working with a high school marching band, which is like right next to my school. And I do have a few students that I had when they were in seventh grade when I first started. And I mean, just seeing the growth um, of where they are now and just knowing that I had a small part in their success, it's just been so, 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 so rewarding. So I'm really excited for next year when all of my students are, it's my, you know, all of my kids and just to see like, okay, I know that I'm having some sort of impact. I must be doing something right. Mine is very similar to Justin. I, I kind of approach teaching music a little backwards. I, I, and I love music, but that's not why I wanted to teach it. I started, I knew I was going to teach in like my junior year in high school. I kind of looked around at the teachers and it made a difference in my life. And I realized it was teachers I had multiple years in a row. And I'm sure if you know me, I'm not going to be a gym teacher. It's not going to happen. I can't do it. So my options were a little limited and I love music. and I love band class. So I, I went into band directing with the hope that I would have kids multiple years in a row. So if I was an elementary school teacher, I'd get those kids six years, high school, four years, middle school, three years. And that has been so amazing this year, just like Justin, to have kids that I taught in sixth grade that are now eighth graders. And like I, it's my first group that I've ever seen from the very beginning and I'm now sending out. And I don't know how I'm possibly going to say goodbye to these kids in May because I feel in a way like I've kind of grown up with them as a teacher and developing my own classroom. So that is just so rewarding. Every single one of those kids, I just could not be more proud of in their journey from sixth grade to now and just how much they've changed and how they've grown. So I, I had hoped that that would be a rewarding thing, but it has given so much more to me than I had ever imagined possible. Uh, but getting to do that every single year, like, man, that's pretty amazing. All right. Thanks, guys. Well, so is there any, any other things that you think that we didn't cover that you really wanted to throw out there uh, before we wrap things up? Yeah, so I had one thing I wanted to bring up um, when we were talking about job hunting and specifically re relating to interviews. What I found, what really helped me when I eventually interviewed for the job that I wanted was the very last interview I conducted. And prior to that, I probably did, you know, six or seven interviews. And what I would say is even if you're not like, you're like, I'm not, there's no way I want to teach at this school. Like, I, I really don't want to do it. Go, if you, if you are getting past the application and they ask to interview you, just go for it because at the very least you get that experience of having to go and do the interview. Because if I, if I didn't interview at any of the places that I wanted and just waited to the job 
to the uh, interview that I wanted with the job that I'm at currently, I probably wouldn't have gotten the job, to be honest, because I just uh, had so much experience with the interviews that I was like, okay, I know what I'm doing. So uh, just interview as many places as you can. If they, you know, obviously you have to get past the application, but if you get asked to interview, go for it. And the last thing I would say is if you, hopefully you have a good, if you are a student teacher or you're about to student teach, hopefully you have a good experience with your cooperating teacher. And I would say just please like try and keep a relationship with your cooperating teacher because I mean, that's just such a great resource and a, and a, a colleague for you to have as you're teaching. Like I said, Charlie, I still, you know, keep up with you and, and John and I still keep up with Daniel Upton and, and you know, everyone over there at Harrisonburg. And it's it just been a great resource for me to have. So hopefully your experience is good or has been good and just don't lose touch. Man, Justin keeps saying everything right before I say it. Stay in touch with your cooperating teachers and ask them to come see you. I've had a couple of teachers from my colleges. I've had a couple of my, I don't know, Charlie, you must've worked with my band at some point. I feel uh, like I'm Actually, sure. I don't think I have. I think you've had John over, but I haven't come over yet. Well, you're coming over. I, got, I need some help with clarinet. So turn on your calendar. But you need to keep those people in your life and have them come and see you and have them see you when you are doing poorly. Do not wait for your band to sound good. Do not wait for your classroom management to be good. Get them in the room when you are suffering so they can see you and where it's at realistically and help you. If you wait to invite them for the most perfect class that you have sounding the best before their concert, they're not going to help you the way that you need help. So invite them into your absolute dumpster fire of a sixth grade and have them observe what you're doing um, so that they can help you. Okay, so at the end of the episode, I have three questions I ask every guest. First question, and we'll, we'll go from youngest to oldest here. Give a mentor shout out and maybe like one sentence about something you appreciate that mentor. Starting with Noah, go. Okay, I'm going to shout out my principal. Every time I have a problem, I'll email him or text him. He will be there within 10 minutes and ask how he can help or observe or just be my support. He has done so much for me. Big shout out to my principal. <laughs> Justin, how about you? I'm going to shout out to band directors that work in Virginia Beach with me, Steve Clendenin and Manny Hernandez, who are just, have just, you know, whenever I have a question, I just throw it at them. And they've just been really great helping me. I've come and, you know, see their bands. They've helped with my bands. And it's just been great to have teachers that are supportive and not cutthroat. <laughs> shout out Pete Eccles, Kate Collins Middle School. He will answer all my questions, no matter how small or insignificant I think they are. I asked him the other week about tone production between trombones and euphoniums, and he pretty much typed up a whole dissertation. Like literally anything that I ask him, he is willing to go to work on it. And that's just so amazing to have someone in the neighboring school district willing to put in that time for me. So shout out Pete at Kate Collins. All right, question number two, name a, uh, a middle school band piece that you're really enjoying right now. We're preparing for our winter parade. We're doing this old piece called Jazzy Old St. Nick. I'm totally blanking on the arranger, but it is just like, full of beautiful like introducing swing and all of this other super awesome stuff for the seventh and eighth graders and i'm having a great time with it i think you might have already shouted this out on your podcast but last year i i did donza de espana by carol Britton chambers and man oh man my kids this year are still playing it every day in class i mean it was it was just awesome yeah, you're going to want to get out your purchase order right now and buy this before it's gone forever. But Carol Britton Chambers' Squirrel Chase came out this year, and we just played it in our October Pops concert. I mean, this piece is it's a medium-fast gallop. That is the sickest thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. It starts with a temple block solo. What? And it has toy horn and slide whistle. 
And if you know what you're doing, it is not a medium fast gallop. It is a fast gallop. That thing exploded on the stage. It was awesome. It's like the most middle school piece I've ever heard in my entire life. The kids get to yell squirrel. You can have a percussionist dress up as a squirrel. We didn't have that, so we dressed up as a dinosaur, but it's close enough. So you need to buy this piece. I have told all my friends to buy it. That is Carol Burton Chambers Squirrel Chase. Program it for the spring. Oh, my God, dude. John told me about your percussionist that had, it was like an inflatable dinosaur costume, right? Yes, I need to be more clear on what able to play your instrument means for next year's costume and concert. Because he was like, his arms are too small, so he was kneeling over, so his snout was like touching the snare. It was awesome. It was amazing. Oh my god, this sounds like so much fun. Okay, last question. Name a band director who is crushing it right now. Yeah, I'm going to shout out Lindsay Eskins, who is at uh, also Virginia Beach uh, Independence Middle School. I actually, when I was in uh, a senior in high school, I was a part of her internship. Uh, but she's just uh, doing amazing things over at her middle school with her jazz band and her program. And she, yeah, she's just been doing great. So shout out Lindsay Eskins. I'm going to shout out Joey Slagle and Hunter Allen. They're two new band directors to my county. They both came in in the last two years, and we've all kind of been figuring out together all in our first three years. And they're just doing amazing things. They've been in contact with one another. They've been in contact with me. Trying to sort this out together because you need to have a network in your first three years. So those two are absolutely crushing it. They make me want to be better at my job. It's so awesome to have those two in my ear. Okay, I'm going to shout out, not a band director, my general music teacher here, Destiny Carter. She has been like incredible. We basically co-teach a lot of the music classes. And if I had any other person that I had to share a general music and band room with, because it's the same, kindergartners are in here before the sixth graders are in here, I would lose my mind. But she has been so incredible. All right, I think that about wraps it up. Thank you, everybody, for coming on the show today. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for joining us on The Flying Baton. Remember, may your tone be dark and your humor light.